0: This is New England Public Radio's Jazz Beat. I'm Tom Reini with a podcast edition of my jazz blog, which you can find at nepr.net. This edition of Jazz Beat is devoted to an interview with Benny Wallace. I spoke with the veteran saxophonist and band leader a few days before an engagement he was playing with the group he calls, in tribute to his hero, Coleman Hawkins, the Disorder at the Border Orchestra. Good morning, Benny. Nice to Good morning, speak. Tom. How are you doing today? I'm great, man. It's been a real kick to hear you in recent years, Benny, with your trio with Carmen and Torrey and Matt Twanzik down at the Integrity in Music and at the uh, Museum of Art in New Britain uh, uh, last summer. And I'm very eager to hear your... Uh, is it a ten-tet, a ten-piece band? It's
1: a nine-piece band. Nine-piece Five band. horns and four rhythm.
0: Right. And what has occasioned the uh, convening of, of the band for these engagements later in the month?
1: Well, actually, uh, on Saturday night, the 26th, we play here in Greenwich, which is we do two concerts a year to raise money for our education programs in Bridgeport. And then on Thursday morning, we'll be playing two sets for uh, a citywide Bridgeport youth concert. And we're bringing everybody in for all that. And we just had this opportunity to play at the side door. And we're, we're recording up at the side door.
0: Yeah. What is your connection with the Bridgeport, Connecticut uh, public schools? None. <laughs> and, I'm,
1: I, and I'm not a member of the Communist Party. But uh, we have been active for gee, uh, uh, about 10 years now, uh, working with, with kids in Bridgeport. And, and at one point we were working in coordination with the public school system, but now it's, uh, we're doing it all on our own. And, you know, we have other partners in the, in the community. Oh. And, and, and actually, you know, like, I guess to be fair, the, the concert that we're doing in the morning on Thursday has a lot of participation from the public school system.
0: I see. So this is really your initiative in the city of Bridgeport. To bring the music into, uh, say, an impoverished, uh, culturally uh, deprived city? We yeah, say? well,
1: you know, this this all started in 2008, and we went up there and played a concert with the same band mm-hmm. at, at an art center. And, and I met a lot of the folks in the school system and in other aspects of education up there and got a sense of, you know, how dire everything was. Mm-hmm. And you know we've got these very affluent communities where I live and other communities surrounding Bridgeport where kids have every opportunity and there they were having no opportunity. So our idea was to try to level the playing field a little bit and it started out just working with children and now it's evolved to where we've got some serious young students and it's it's really inspiring and challenging to keep up
0: with them. Mm. What age range
1: well, they start about the fifth grade and go through high school, and and actually we had two people come back, two of our former students come back for our summer program this summer, but most of them are in you know in junior high and high school age.
0: Mm-hmm. And is your approach to introduce them to what we would think of as sort of mainstream jazz? uh. I don't
1: know. <laughs> uh well, i would say maybe not mainstream jazz you know we try to inter- introduce them to the history of the music and and teach them how you play it you know and teach them what the, what the art form and the craft is based on specifically you know we try to nurture their own individual talent mm-hmm. rather than teaching an agenda mm-hmm. I mean, we, you know, we do teach uh, certain systems of, of learning rhythm and learning chords and things like that. But even a lot of that is, is not conventional.
0: Right. And but, I, did, I, I didn't mean mainstream jazz so much as a qualifying term. It's more the tradition of jazz. Or,
1: yeah, uh, yeah. You know, uh, Vincy Gillespie once told my friend Wendell Brunus when he was a young trumpet player, he said, uh, you want to keep one foot, in the future and one foot in the blues. (laughs) And that's become my motto. And, And so we teach these kids how to play. We start out teaching them how to play the blues. And then we teach them chord changes and they learn Charlie Parker tunes, and Thelonious Monk tunes, and Dizzy Gillespie tunes. And it's just an ongoing process, but you know, each artist, and that's true of students too, if they really develop their aspiration, have their own voice. And we try to teach these young musicians how to find their own voice.
0: Well, I would say, Benny, that uh, you've always impressed me as a um, saxophonist with the unique, highly individual, unmistakable voice on the horn. And let's uh, back up a little bit to your own um, origins in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I think of two major figures in music from Chattanooga, Bessie Smith and Benny Wallace. Uh, what What was your background there?
1: Uh, well there's actually been others too. I don't, bet
0: I bet there have been, but don't uh, don't
1: forget Jimmy Blanton.
0: Oh my god, that's right. And and my Les, bad.
1: Les Spann, the guitarist of flues, and flutist, who played yeah. the Gillespie and Winston Jones.
0: And is on a beautiful Red Garland album. Oh really? Yep. I haven't heard that. Early sixties. So one of my very first jazz records, this Red Garland date with Les Spann, playing both flute and guitar. Yeah. With, yeah. With
1: you know, when I was a kid, well, you you know, yes, I guess you're asking me how I got started. Mm-hmm. And when I was 11 years old, my mother bought me a Count Basie and Lester Young record, and I, I really loved that record. But I didn't play the saxophone. I was playing the clarinet at the time. And then two years later. When I was in the eighth grade, we had a new band teacher come to our school, and he was a jazz musician, and he had an agenda to start a jazz band with the kids. And so he gave me a, this old Pan American saxophone and a Sonny Rollins record, and he said, try to do something like this.
0: Well, do you remember the record?
1: <laughs> oh, I've, as I live with it, I've still tried to do something like that. It was a record called Dizzy Gillespie Duets with Rollins and Stitt.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Sonny plays this medium tempo F blues on there which is, I think to this day maybe the, I, I've never heard a finer blues solo on the
0: saxophone than that one. Is that that tune something? Yep, that's mm. the one. Mm. 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 love it.
1: And in fact, an old friend of mine sent me a newspaper article from Knoxville talking about a club there. And that first year when I was still 13, our teacher put us in a station wagon, drove us a hundred miles to Knoxville to hear Count Basie's band. Wow. And that was a transforming experience. <laughs> you know, I was extremely lucky to have this teacher and his colleagues who he introduced us to and the music that he introduced us to and, you know, like now in my old age, I'm I'm trying to share some of that with younger musicians.
0: Mm-hmm. So we're talking late 50s, 59, 60s? Yeah, and yeah. Was, I uh... started
1: listening to this music in 1959.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. And Basie in Knoxville. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, oh,
1: it was, and it was that great band, you know, the one with I think Stad Jones was still in the band and uh, Sonny Payne and you know, with Frank West, Marshall Royal, that you know, that classic yeah and that saxophone player who played with Quincy Jones's band had just joined.
0: Eric Dixon?
1: Eric Dixon, yeah. And because all the other musicians were teasing him because he was still
0: looking at the music. <laughs> <laughs> and you picked up on that? Oh yes. Cool. <laughs> And then from Chattanooga, you went on to college right there in your home state?
1: Yeah, I went to uh, the University of Tennessee and majored in staying out of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I got out of there in 68. Mm.
0: Did you major in music?
1: Yeah, I made, it, it was actually the clarinet. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, there was no jazz program there. I was just studying classical music.
0: And from there, was it a big leap to New York?
1: Well, the summer I got out of high school... I got this little scholarship to go to Berkeley School of Music that summer, and I really liked the saxophone teacher up there. And, and as soon as I got out of college, I went to Boston and, and I just hung out in Boston and studied with him for a year before I came to New York.
0: And who was that?
1: He was a, a fellow named Joe Viola.
0: Oh, sure. Mm-hmm.
1: He, he taught a lot of really great saxophone players. Wonderful teacher and a wonderful man.
0: Yeah, very revered, uh, Yeah, I would say, yeah.
1: I would come in to him for his last lesson of the day, and I remember he charged me five dollars, and he would drive me home.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you eventually got to New York. Was that it?
1: Yeah, I I was in Boston for a year, and I went out to San Francisco for about three months, and then I went to New York and stayed there ever since you know, for a long time.
0: When did you transition? You know, from clarinet to tenor.
1: Well, that was in the 8th grade. I mean, oh. I, my teacher gave me the saxophone, but I played both instruments all the way through college, but the clarinet was the instrument that I studied. Mm-hmm.
0: There was a curriculum for it. Uh, yeah. More more so than saxophone, I suppose. Yeah.
1: And and you know, I was I was interested in classical music and 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 it was good training for me. I mean, a, a lot of the things that I have today as as a, is a an improviser got, comes from that, you know, because mm-hmm. you know I studied Bartok's music and and Brahms' music, Debussy's music, and you know just got a sense of how that related to the music, you know, to jazz.
0: Mm-hmm. Do I remember correctly that you made one of your earliest records with Flip Phillips and Scott Hamilton?
1: Yeah, that would that would have been my absolute first record date. Wow. Yeah.
0: Mid seventies.
1: There was a there was a guy in town who was making a whole bunch of like mass production record. You know, I think we made that whole record in three.
0: Your record of yours right now called Sweeping Through the City that you made with uh, Ray Anderson and John Schofield and Mike Richmond and Tom Whaley and, and a, a gospel group called the Wings of Song. <laughs> how did you know? How do you know the Wings of Song? How did that come together?
1: Well, they were uh, just a local gospel group in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I was working on a movie mm. that needed a gospel group, and I, I met them, and they were they were very interesting interesting ladies. You know, they sang in church on Sunday, and they had a little radio show on Saturday. And uh, just during that time, I hung out with them, and Inja and wanted me to do something completely different. And uh, I thought, okay, this is completely different. <laughs> I lived a life
2: full of trouble
0: This is, uh, this is an album of your compositions and, and lyrics as well?
1: Yes, that's that's what my only attempt at lyric writing.
0: <laughs> well, I love Trouble and Woe, and um, and to hear uh, the Wings of Song joining you. And I think of Ray Anderson, who's just like your perfect counterpart. You're like brothers from another mother. But how did you and Ray, the trombonist Ray Anderson, um, uh, lock horns, as it were?
1: Well, that's an interesting, that's a good question. Uh, that first year that I was in New York, you know, I was just hanging around and, you know, trying to learn to play and, and going to jam sessions. And there was this guy down on Canal Street. He was a drummer. I can't remember his name, but he had a little loft. And I got invited to a jam session down there one day, and there was Ray Anderson. And we started playing. And just from that first moment, we had this empathetic way of playing together without any. You know, preconception—it just—it worked, and you know, I haven't played with Ray in two, or three years, but but it still does. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, he's on the uh, earlier recording you made with Disorder at the Border. Will he be with you this month?
1: Uh, no, no, I've got this wonderful young trombone player, Corey Wilcox. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Corey's has played with me a, a few times in the last year. And uh, he's uh, his father is a famous trombone player named Wycliffe Norton. <laughs> and but Corey is an amazing uh, trombone player, and I'm I'm really having fun playing with him.
0: He must be very young.
1: He is. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of these guys in the band are young enough to be my grandchildren.
0: <laughs> well, I'll be especially looking forward to hearing him. I know the name, and of course I know his father. But uh, uh, this will be the first time I've seen Corey.
1: Oh, he he's really amazing, and, and he's so talented, and he, he really plays the trombone well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he's fun.
0: Mm. You made an album of uh, Thelonious Monk's music uh, not long after Monk's uh, death. And uh, uh, No, and...
1: no. I made that record when, when Monk was still living.
0: Oh, you did, huh?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm very proud of that. It was, I, was, I wasn't chasing a hearse.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What inspired that uh, album, because I think this may be close, well, I know Steve Lacey made an all-Monk album in the late 50s, but it was unusual for records of this kind uh, to be devoted to the work of one composer. It's become much more commonplace, of course, since Monk's passing and that of Charles Mingus, too. uh.
1: Well, you know, when when I came to New York, like a lot of my contemporaries wanted to play with Miles Davis that was the thing you know, you get, if you get the gig with Miles Davis you've got a career And you know that was kind of like mm-hmm. the, but I, I really wanted to play with Polonius Monk fortunately I didn't get the chance because I just was totally unprepared but he was he was my hero and his band and the, his compositions and just you know the way he approached music and I used to go hear him when I first came to town down at the, the Village Vanguard
2: mm-hmm. and
1: I just really admired his music and 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 I was playing a lot of his compositions in my trio so it was just a logical idea to to do a whole album of his music and it was a a real educational experience to to uh, explore that music and record it
0: Mentioning this, but uh, John S. Wilson in the New York Times said that you played Monk's music in essence better than Charlie Rouse. Oh, God <laughs> bless him. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't, I don't know if it's true, but uh, but I'm, I've got a lot of respect for John S. Wilson. And, mm. and actually, I, you know, like years later, I actually met him one time, and uh, but he. Uh, kind of helped me get started. I didn't. I didn't know him. You know, I'd never seen him, but he came to a couple of gigs that I was playing with other people's bands and wrote about me. Hmm. And, and that didn't hurt for helping me get started.
0: Right. Sure, John S. Wilson. I love a line that Jimmy Rolls has about you. He says uh, you're like Coleman Hawkins on skis.
1: Yeah, and he actually drew a cartoon of me on skis playing the saxophone.
0: Was Hawkins early hero of yours?
1: Yes, yeah. Well, you know, my early heroes were his disciples. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, Lockjaw Davis and Sonny Rollins, uh, the guys that played the bassy. And I didn't, I didn't really get into to Coleman Hawkins until a little bit later. And then when I did, it really, you know, really struck me. I realized, you know, just how important and beautiful his music was. Mm
0: -hmm. What, What do you hear in particular when you hear Hawk?
1: for that sound. Mm-hmm. You know, that sound is like the benchmark for all tenor saxophone sounds to this day. Mm-hmm. And the way he played ballads. Mm-hmm. I, You know, I, I, I love Ben Webster's ballad playing. And, yeah. you know, I love a lot of people. I like Mark Chow's ballad playing, Johnny Hodges, you know, all those guys. But there's something about the way that among the early great ballad players, and you, it's arguable that Coleman Hawkins invented The jazz tenor ballad style. Sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he played ballads like a jazz musician. And by that, I know that's a strange thing to say, but, uh, you know, Ben Webster and Johnny Hodges and Stan Getz and a lot of those guys, you know, like they, they were great jazz musicians playing ballads. But there was something about the way that Hawkins did it that it had the same kind of improvisatory genesis that that mm-hmm. up-tempo playing is does that make sense
0: absolutely sure
1: you, you know like they uh, i heard somebody say incorrectly one time that hawkins famous body and soul he never plays the melody well actually he was playing he was embellishing the melody all the way through mm-hmm. and it was that thing that that really got me mm-hmm. and uh you know early on in the game i learned his Body and Soul solo, and I used to, for years, I would I would play it every morning to warm up.
0: Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, well, certainly Hawkins, um, even before Body and Soul, he was uh, embellishing, as you say. He was really creating something that sounded new and always fresh on fairly material, uh, familiar material in that ballad uh, uh, style.
1: Well, wasn't that, that one-hour solo oh, that's the what I would call the first jazz ballad solo. that was about, what, 1930, something like that. Even
0: before that, I think it's uh, 29. Yeah. Yep, yeah, with uh, Red McKenzie and the Mound City Blue Blowers, so yeah, if I yeah. recall correctly. Yeah, yeah
1: and, and then those things that he did in Europe.
0: Oh, uh, of course. You
1: know, I mean, yeah. all that came before Body and Soul. But uh, I think Teddy Wilson once said that Body and Soul was the greatest jazz solo ever. Mm.
0: What are you bringing together for, um, for the show uh, uh, later this month in Bridgeport and Greenwich and Old Lyme, Connecticut with the Disorder at the Border Orchestra? And tell us the genesis of that name alone.
1: Disorder at the Border? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, a famous Coleman Hawkins uh, a blues composition that we recorded on that that album. Uh, sure. with the fir- you know, when we started. See, Disorder at the Border was formed in 2004 to celebrate Hawkins's centennial, mm-hmm. and so we arranged uh, a set of, t- of of either Hawkins compositions or songs that he was famously associated with, and uh, and Disorder at the Border was one of them. And it was the perfect title for the album and, and the name of the band. Because mm-hmm. we traveled with that band for a few years in Europe, and we had disorder at many borders. <laughs> and uh,
0: so that... I'm chuckling at that, but was there uh, seriously uh, hassle-ridden uh, moments uh, getting across borders?
1: Uh, you know, the the one that sticks out in my mind is, well, the first time we went to Europe, like the trip where we recorded that album, we, we were going somewhere... We were riding somewhere in Europe, and Donald Vega had a Nicaraguan passport, and it became a problem. Mm-hmm. And you know, and here's Donald Vega, you know, the sweetest, most innocent guy in the band, <laughs> and he caused the disorder at the border.
0: And the album has a nice uh, uh, Coleman Hawkins theme throughout: "La Rosita," "Bean and the Boys," "Honeysuckle Rose," "Body and Soul." All tunes that we know of by Hawk. Um, what will you be doing this month? Is it more focused on original uh, material?
1: Yeah, this is gonna this is gonna be a com- a complete program of uh, compositions by my favorite composer, me.
0: <laughs> you and, sound like you sound like the guy who wrote that new book by Elton John entitled "Me."
1: Oh no, I didn't know about that.
0: <laughs> I just heard it yesterday on NPR.
1: No, uh, we played a concert a year ago at, at in Greenwich. Uh, with this band, and we we did the the Hawkins and set, and we had a couple of other tunes that what made their way into the book. And I, this particular band, I just I fell in love with with the band. It, the way the way these musicians played the music was really on another level. And I and I told myself at that moment, I got to get this band together and do something else. And so. I made the decision pretty quick after that to do this project, and, and so Anthony Wilson and I are, are arranging, uh, I think it's eight of my compositions, you know, for the band, and so that's going to be the program.
0: Anthony is the guitarist who's worked with Diana Krall extensively and is the son of the great uh, and late arranger and composer Gerald Wilson, right? Right. Hmm. How did you connect with Anthony? I think of him as uh, an L.A. Uh, uh, musician. And- his
1: mother brought him to hear my band when he was in high school. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And we were playing in L.A. And then I I moved out there to, to work on films for a bit. And when I was there, we somehow reconnected and he asked me to play in his nine-piece band. He was doing a little recording. So that's how I you know kind of found out what he was about musically. Mhm.
0: And as long as you were out in LA at the moment, tell me how did you get involved in uh, composing for films? It was a
1: complete accident. The, this first-time film director heard the Twilight Time record and he wanted uh, he used one of the tunes from the record in his film and then he wanted uh something to go at the end of the movie and and, and worked it out to where that you know, with the film company and and my record company, they hired us to come out for me to write that and, you know, to come out and record it for the movie.
0: And what movie was that? Bull Durham. Oh, okay. <laughs> and Twilight Time was one of the albums you made in the mid-'80s when you were with Blue Notes. Right. Yeah, nice connection. Hmm. Did you also do the soundtrack for the uh, uh, movie Blaze? Yep. Was that Huey Long... Related oh, no, picture? Earl, Long. Earl Long, okay. Yeah. With Paul Newman?
1: Right. Wow. That was actually my first complete film score with with, with uh Bull Durham. I just kind of came in at the end of the project and, and I did, I don't know, two or three cues and but somebody else did the score. Mm-hmm. And, but with Blaze, I did the the whole film score.
0: You know, I, I wouldn't have been able to answer the question as to who Composed the score for that film until just now, but i've always remembered that I liked the music in that movie and and that was yours well thank you <laughs> yeah, it was
1: that was a that was an interesting project and, and uh, of course I'd never written a film score before and and I was just you know kind of doing it from the perspective of a jazz musician mm-hmm. and, and although the the music in the film wasn't jazz, it was southern music, sure.
0: You also recorded with uh, Doctor John, right? Uh, who, of course, has passed uh, recently. And uh, what was what was your connection with him, and how did it begin?
1: Well, I was making the Twilight Time record, and uh, I was working with a producer named Joel Dorn. Joel's sure. you know real veteran producer, mm-hmm. and uh, Joel was a great producer. But we locked head, heads a few times, mm-hmm. and so I was doing this recording session with Stevie Ray Vaughan and so the band was going to be Stevie Ray Vaughan the record company fired Joel Dorn and so I I hired Mac to finish the record.
0: together subsequently
1: oh yeah we um from that relationship uh, i asked him to produce my next record Border Town, and you know and he played with me on a few gigs and i played with him on a couple of gigs and then um, uh, he and i com- actually co-composed the end title theme for uh, bull durham and we recorded that out in la together and you know we were we were friends from then on He he was he was actually the featured piano player on the theme for Blaze, Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. and
1: uh, that was a really interesting combination of um, some great bluegrass and country musicians and uh, 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 Mac and Leon Nocentelli from the Meters. Oh yeah, Mm -hmm. and but yeah, we were we were friends for for years, and we you know we just we did things together from time to time.
0: Well, between Dr. John and the meters, and you meant, mentioned Wendell Brunius uh, earlier, um, have you spent much time in New Orleans?
1: You know, just when I would be down there for gigs, and, um, and until Katrina, I had a, a very good friend, uh, the bass player Bill Huntington was living there, mm-hmm. and I would go visit Bill from time to time, uh, maybe, you know, play a gig or something, but uh, uh, but I never lived there. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, what is it that... Uh... Attracts you to—I know you're going to work with your own compositions uh, later this month, but what is it that it say attracts you to a song? You've made some beautiful albums of ballads, of standards, uh, uh, the old songs, "The Nearness of You," uh, a George Gershwin album.
1: It's the melody, mm-hmm. you know. I just—I love those great melodies, and—and and, you know, if you think about it, and I actually learned this by working with the kids. The vocabulary of jazz, in great degree, comes from those great old melodies. If you listen to Charlie Parker solos, or, or, or Coleman Hawkins solos, or Sonny Rod solos, they all will somehow, and with some variation, refer to the to the opening melody of Honeysuckle Rose. You know, there are a million of those tunes that they would quote in their solos, and that become a part of the language. And, uh, you know, I just, I think... I think those great melodies are are going to be remembered as one of the great contributions of our society to, to art in the future. You know, Cole Porter, George Gershwin, and Jerome and all those great writers, and, du, and Duke Ellington, you know,
0: and mm-hmm. Billy Strayhorn. Mm-hmm. Can you remember a time in your uh, uh, life, in your career, uh, which I certainly do in mine, when the songs were sort of um, uh, downplayed and... And the elevated status that inventive, improvising jazz musicians gave them is what seemed to be most valued. Well,
1: yeah, and and I think that's I think that's valid. And, and uh, you know, in my own life, like you know, when I was in college, I, as I mentioned earlier, I discovered Bartok and how he uh, how he created melodies, and from my point of view, how they would relate to, to chord changes that I. Confronted in jazz, and 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 then I went on from there to study other contemporary composers like Charles Ives and uh, uh, Elliot Carter and mm-hmm. and a lot of these guys that were you know like really kind of the pinnacle of of early twentieth century Stravinsky you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, and I got really into that and into improvising in that world of, you know apart from from jazz tunes and and we would when we had the, the bands doing that we would. Put in a, you know, a Duke Ellington tune in the set or a Monk tune, something like that. And uh, then it was actually a radio show that I started listening to regularly uh, in, the, in the early 70s of Ed Beach. And he would play all this great music of you know of Ellington and Don Bias and Gene Ammons, Ben Webster and all these people playing these beautiful melodies. And I made a conscious decision to spend a year just studying that music and kind of going away from... What I'd been doing, and mm-hmm. I've never went back. <laughs> you know, because when you when you marry the, those two languages, it just gives you all these colors to work with, and, and that's that's been my my inspiration for you know most of my career.
0: Mm-hmm. We probably heard some of those same Ed Beach shows back then. Uh, he got picked up by uh, a station in Boston in the early '70s, and I could pull them in just barely. But um, he was worth the effort of, uh, of tuning a radio dial. And uh, you mentioned Don Bias, and uh, I remember the shows devoted to Bias, Ben Webster, Hawk, Lester Young, Chewberry, uh, other players like that, and I've always uh, just really um, savored that, uh, that experience of hearing. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and, and
1: didn't he have a great voice? Oh, man. <laughs> the, the barometer is. Daddy, <laughs> I can't do it as deep as
0: he could. <laughs> I've heard some of those. Uh, uh, did you know Mort Figa? Do you know that name? I know the name, but yeah. I never met him. Mort, Mort did radio around New York in the '60s and New Miles and all the cats. And uh, and uh, and Mort, uh, through a connection I had with Mort, uh, whom I knew for a number of years, uh, he sent me some uh, some tapes of Ed Beach, uh, some discs and. Uh, it's been interesting to listen back to those from a, you know, like a 40-plus year-long uh, uh, perspective. And uh, he was great, a great teacher and just uh, impeccable taste. And I remember, too, as long as we're on the topic, the, uh, the Sunday New York Times ran a big feature on him. It was like page one of the Arts and Leisure section back then. And it, uh, it had a picture of Ed standing before his record collection, and it said something in the caption about how those records sort of defined his life or whatever. But um, uh, I've held on to that uh, now yellowed piece of news copy on, on Ed Beach these many years and wrote a little memorial on him when he died a few years ago. But
1: you know, uh, I was in a record shop out in uh, Seattle, Washington one time, <laughs> and I found this record. Uh, it was a Teddy Wilson record, and it had all this very tiny writing on the back of it.
0: What you're talking about? Yeah, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm.
1: E- you know, evidently he had had to sell his records toward the end, or something like
0: that. Yeah, yeah, he fell on hard times, as I understand. He lived out there in Oregon. Yeah, um,
1: yeah, uh, you know, the, you talk about the cassette tapes. Like in those days, like I would tape the show, and i have still got these cassettes. And but I wouldn't tape his talking. I would just tape the music because I did <laughs>
0: ever sarcastic. <laughs> you know, now that you mentioned the back of the Teddy Wilson album, this um, uh, person who had a personal connection with Ed sent me, um, uh, and uh, I was so honored to receive this, uh, uh, sent me uh, not only some uh, taped uh, archive of Ed, but also some of the notes that he made for himself, and uh, not on the backs of albums, but like the backs of envelopes and things. But uh <laughs> And and write the notes he would make on a kind of playlist um, that he had typed out and uh, all of that. But uh, I can see his uh, that very tiny uh, uh, script of his um, as we mentioned him. Yeah, um, I've
1: still got that record.
0: Hmm. You're gonna have Herlin Riley on drums with you. Uh. Yeah,
1: well, we've we've got a great band. Uh, Herlin Riley's playing drums. Matt Dwyer's on bass. Donald Vega on piano. Um, Joe Magnarelli on trumpet, mm-hmm. and uh, and I mentioned uh, Corey Wilcox on trombone, Godwin Louis on alto saxophone. And mm-hmm. if you haven't heard him, you've got to hear him. He's just amazing. And uh, Carl Baraghi on baritone, and and Anthony Wilson on guitar.
0: Nice. And you're the tenor man, right? Matt Dwanzik is a player whom I know and, and area listeners have gotten to know and enjoy seeing him come along, and I've seen him with you now for the past oh, two or three years. Uh, tell us a little bit about this uh, new and emerging basis, Matt Dwanzik.
1: Well, you know, I met Matt when he first got out of uh, Hart School, and somebody brought him over here to the house to play, and I just really, uh, uh, really enjoyed playing with him. He, he has already had his own voice on the bass. And then he went to graduate school, actually quite near my house, to get his master's degree. And I didn't see him much. And he did a, he did a recital of all Monk tunes for his graduate recital. Hmm. And for some reason I couldn't go. And I asked him to make me a tape of it and invited him over. And we started playing Monk tunes together. And when we've been playing together ever since. But, you know, the thing that really draws me to Matt's playing is the way he listens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Coleman Hawkins once said, the difference between a good player and a great player is not how well they play, but how well they listen. Mm -hmm. And Matt has this wonderful talent of, in addition to all the other functions of a bass player, of finding finding just the right contrapuntal thing to play to what I'm playing in, in, in the melody or in the solo. And uh, you know we play together a lot, and we play tunes over and over. And every time we play it, it goes somewhere else, and mm. it's it's really loose. And uh, but I, you know, I just think he's a very unique jazz improviser beyond just you know being a really wonderful bass player.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Benny, it's been a pleasure to talk with you today, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to hearing you. I think I'll be down on Friday, your second night uh, there at the Side Door, and. Um, Wishing you the very best with uh, with the uh, concerts this month, and and uh, looking. For, I hope that uh, you say you're going to record it. I hope it eventually uh, meets your uh, standards, and uh, and that you'll release it.
1: Yeah, well, you know, you know that that's that's a whole other interview conversation. Is there really a record business anymore? Mm. <laughs> but uh, but uh, you know, I, I would just like to say about the side doors. That's it's just a wonderful place to play. And uh, Ken Kitchens has really made a great atmosphere there for the musicians and the listeners. And if, if anybody has not been there, I suggest that they go. And, and this is the best time to go, of course.
0: <laughs> for Benny Wallace and the Disorder at the Border Orchestra, Side Door, Old Lyme, Connecticut, Thursday and Friday, October 24th and f- 25th. And. We'll see you then, Benny.
1: Thanks so much, Tom. As always, it's been a pleasure
0: speaking with you. Oh, thank you so much. Take care, man. You too.
2: Bye. Uh.